Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the Stimetric Podcast. I'm John. One of the dirty little secrets of City Metric, and believe me, there are so many, but one of them is that it's really just me here a lot of the time. You know, we're a pretty, we're a pretty small title. So there's a certain amount of hustling that goes into to making sure the site is, is full every day. And sometimes, sometimes there just isn't enough time. You know, things fall off the to-do list. And I've been very worried about what I was going to do with this week's podcast because I haven't had time to, to, to record one. I've got ideas for the next couple of weeks, but I haven't had time to record one myself this week. And you know, Stephen Bush isn't here right now, so I can't drag him down and make him an argument about, you know, which is the best borough of Greater Manchester or something, which is what I'd normally do at this juncture. So I was really thinking maybe, maybe the podcast will have to take a week off. And then I remembered something. A couple of weeks ago, a guy called Joshua Bryant got in touch with a, with a sort of proposition. He's, he's a student. He'd been at a lecture that he thought was very interesting and kind of in our, in our wheelhouse. And he asked if we'd be interested in, in an interview with the guy who gave the lecture for Skylines. And this is not something we've, we've done before, but you know, we, we, we get all sorts of contributors on, on Cityometric itself. So I thought, you know, why not give it a try? So hearing what I, I don't know what we're going to call this. Here is our first guest presenter, I suppose. But, um, Here's Joshua Bryant to uh, tell you more. Hey, so I'm a civil environmental engineering student at University College London and also a avid reader of Citymetric and listener of Skylines. And I know John's always going on about how he doesn't want it to be entirely about uh, London. So I thought that maybe he'd be interested in a lecture I had the other week about slum upgrading um, in India. And it was taken by Himanshu Parit, who's a world expert on the matter and the recipient of several UN development awards, and his daughter Priti Parik, who's developed a lot of his work academically, especially looking at the role that gender has to play in development. And... Um, I just thought it was fascinating and so uh, asked if they'd be willing to do an interview for Skylines and then I emailed John and asked if he'd let me do an interview for Skylines and they both hesitantly said yes so here you go. Hello my name is Himanshu Parikh, I'm an engineer and uh, I worked in slums of India for about 35 years. I do this work because I love engineering, and I think engineering can do a lot to change the slums. Hello, this is Preeti Parikh. I'm a senior lecturer at University College London and program director for a Master's in Engineering for International Development. 
So, uh, Himanshu, there are over a billion people on the world who live in slums. Like this, the scale of this problem is enormous. How do you even begin to uh, think about solving it? Well, I don't think you should look at such a large number. The numbers are always very overpowering. And I think the best way to start is just to start somewhere. So that, that, that's the best way to start. The other thing is that uh, one is very pessimistic about slums. And if you actually work in slums, you realize that there are a lot of wonderful things which are happening in slums. You know, there's, there's a lot of enterprise in slums. There's, there are very strong community linkages in slums. And um, they're very strong and resourceful people to be, to be able to get established in a slum. And then to survive in slum shows the kind of strength people have, which is beyond that that most people would have. So I think if you start respecting that, you find that things are not as pessimistic as they look. So in your experience, is there any kind of strategy that does routinely work to bring about organic slum development? Well, as, as, as I started working in slums, I realised there were two or three uh, very sort of impelling things which were, which were emerging. The first one was, I mean, the, the, the general attitude towards slums is that let's sort of clear them up, what was this mess, and give people housing and put them in nice houses and all the thing. If you look at the mathematics of it, you find that housing for all the people provided by the state is not affordable. And if you work in slums, you actually find out that if you just concentrate on providing the basic services, which is water, sanitation, and cap it with some kind of land tenure or land security, you find that people are resourceful enough to transform their own settlements themselves. There's a huge amount of hidden capacity for a change. And so all you have to do is just sort of trigger that capacity and water and sanitation does this. So that's, that's the first thing I learned, that if you actually use water and sanitation, it transforms the whole settlements, the housing happens automatically. The other thing that I learned as I sort of started doing more and more work in slums was that, you know, we, we have a sort of a set mindset that there's poverty there. People can't afford and they need aid and they need help and how we manage that. And you find again that, you know, if you do the right things, huge resources start emerging from within. People who you think are poor have huge potential to generate their own resources. Okay. And in fact, if you use water and sanitation as a strategy, that increases their resources because if you, you know, the less illnesses, more working hours, less time spent on sort of getting, fetching water, dealing with sewerage, cleaning up the mess outside. But the, the whole idea that, you know, uh, we're dealing with poor, poor, it's uh, the word poor is, is, uh, is not that easy to define, you know, and it's very, it's not that difficult to transcend poverty. So that's the second thing that I'd learned. And the third thing that I sort of started picking up as an engineer, because as an engineer, you sort of notice that very, very quickly, was that slums are very closely tied up with the natural topographies of towns and cities. Now, what that means is that, you know, water flows naturally downhill and all the towns and cities have natural drainage paths because otherwise the, the, those towns and cities would not have grown up. They would have drowned before they even started expanding. So there are automatically very good natural paths, drainage paths running through cities. Now, if you capitalize upon that, you can actually produce water and drainage much more cost-effectively and efficiently. And slums happen to be on these drainage paths. So if you're smart, you can actually use the slums to start developing cities' drainage paths, cities' sanitation networks, cities' sewerage networks, cities' water supply networks. And you then change the whole idea that your slums are sort of parasites on the city or they're going to do something for the poor kind of a thing. 
and you find that they actually contribute to the development of, of the human habitat. So it's very tempting to look at this situation and think that mass housing projects are the quickest and easiest solutions to a lot of the problems which some dwellers face. I know it would be expensive, but this must be the ideal solution, right? See, the problem with mass housing is that, I mean, we always see housing as a product, but it's not actually a product, it's a process. Now, if you take any slum settlement, or in fact, any, any settlement anywhere, there isn't something called standard house. Every house is a little different and is tailored to suit that family. You know, it may be a small family, large family, several generations living together. The house itself changes over the, the, the life cycle as well. And, and therefore, to see housing as a product is not the right thing. You know, so instead of that, if you enable people to develop their own housing and let it develop at its own pace, its own time, family by family is different, you get something A, which is more appropriate, and B, which changes over time rather than a product. And of course, it is a lot, lot cheaper to do that because if you invest in the infrastructure rather than housing, the cost of infrastructure is one-tenth of housing, and the remaining nine-tenth is produced by the people themselves over a long period. So you are getting 100% investment by just initially investing 10%. So that, you know, that, that's the reason why you don't sort of focus into housing. It's something people can do for themselves. And they're enterprising enough if they don't know, if they are not builders, that they can hire local contractors and local help to do that. So there are huge issues around the land ownership and uh, crime inside slum communities. How do you go about getting local politicians and local governments to invest in infrastructure in what they deem to be legal settlements? You say that that upfront government investment is very small, but on the scale that we're looking at with some sub-Saharan African countries having upwards of 70% of their urban population living in slums, it must all add up to a pretty sizable amount. Well, the investment that is required is, because it's, it's a small proportion of the, of the total package, it should be affordable to most countries. But nevertheless, for some countries, the numbers are so high that even that represents very high budgets. So you reduce that further by, by producing partnership. And the partnership is partly government, partly other enterprises around, which may be sort of businesses, industries, commercial enterprises, partly perhaps any aid which is coming in. And most critically, one of the partners should be the community itself. Once you do that, so if you're going to get the total package, which costs, say, $100 for $10 only, and then you have two or three partners, the amount that the government has to pay is a fraction of $10, which is sort of $3 or $4, something like that. So that $100 product has become a $3 or $4 product. So partnerships are very, very important. So you mentioned aid there very briefly. Is there a role for international aid in uh, slum development? Yes, there is. The international aid cannot finance slum development because the amount available is so tiny compared to the, to the need. Uh, but the way international aid can help is it can start mechanisms whereby partnerships are put together. And that's the difficult part because generally in developing countries, uh, the approach to the whole slum problem is that there are huge national programs which cost a huge amount, which are not affordable, there are no resources. And so someone has to, and to bring about these kind of partnerships is not within the, the bureaucratic culture. What international aid can do is use aid in very small pockets to actually show that small 
grassroots developments can produce good results. So it's it's like a you know aid should be used more to demonstrate new kind of techniques and new ideas, and then aid can also be used to help the governments to start upscaling it rather than bureaucratize it. So what does the results of a successful slum upgrade actually look like? How does it change visually? Well, the first thing that happens is that, I mean, if you walk in slums, you know, you actually have very dirty roads and muddy roads in, in, in the rains and very tight, narrow spaces and wire cables everywhere overhead and that kind of thing. So the first thing that happens as you change infrastructure is that the appearance outside the houses starts improving, first of all. So that's the first thing that happens. But with better infrastructure, as the prosperity of people increases, and also if you reinforce that with land tenure, the next thing that starts happening, it takes about a year or two before people build up certain savings, is that people start turning their little shacks into slightly better housing. So, you know, they, they remove the shack and probably build one small brick box and, and, and so on. So the first change that you see is the improved appearance of the street. The next one is that the buildings start changing very, very slowly. And that process then continues for years. So if you come back five years later, you find that those one one room boxes have become, you know, three or four room boxes. Some probably have added the first floor on. Uh, some staircases have been added. Uh, toilets have been incorporated in the house and so on. And the, the, the process continues for a long, long time. And if you see that after about 10 or 15 years, you know, it's almost just looking like the formal city. And pretty. Um, you hear a lot in this country about aid schemes to install public handpost pumps, uh, community wells and public latrines in developing regions. I know it's not ideal, but it's got to be a good place to start, right? Uh, no, not at all, because uh, in the short term, if you look at the capital costs, those solutions appear to be cheap and quick and efficient. But then with most of the solutions, there's a lack of clarity on who would operate those systems, who would maintain those systems, uh, ownership of those systems, and most of those systems then go into a state of disrepair. But focusing more on public toilets, which I think is a big topic in developing countries at the moment, especially for women, most of the public toilets are actually sited in very unsafe or insecure locations. They're poorly lit, um, which means that when women try and access those facilities, they find it very, very difficult, uh, which results in health problems for women. Um, also, those facilities are very challenging to access if um, you have any physical kind of challenges. So uh, if you are kind of elderly, so actually those facilities do not serve the purpose that they intend to serve and they do not benefit um, various segments of society equally. So actually, I do not think public toilet is a viable or suitable solution. So thanks to Himanshu and Pretty for, for their time and particularly thanks to, to Joshua for, for getting in touch and, and offering us that genuinely very interesting interview. Uh, so this is the first time we've, we've tried something like this. I have had people approach me and suggest something similar before, but I've not tried it. So let me know what you think. You know where I am on social media. Tell me if you thought it was a good idea and you want to hear less of me or if actually you think the whole thing is horrible. Don't say that. Don't, it's a night. Joshua's giving up his time here for us. Don't say that. But, you know. Give us a bit of feedback is really what I'm saying here. And if, you know, if, if you're out there with with interesting interviewees or something to say, then, you know, sometimes we have slots to fill. So 
get in touch. We'll see you next time. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.